street smart success. This is Roger Becker, your host. As a young residential realtor in Ann Arbor, Michigan, making over a million dollars in the late 90s, to large ground-up multifamily and condo projects he's currently doing, John Bogdasarian has done it all. Founder, president, and CEO of Permanis, John raises the capital and handles the back end for different developers who have proven track records in the country's fastest growing markets where demand far exceeds supply. John also invests in other businesses where the returns can be extraordinary. So today we have with us a highly, highly accomplished guy uh, that's done some pretty heavy lift, big stuff. And I've been super excited to interview him for that reason. Uh, Does a lot of ground up, but has done a ton of other stuff, has tremendous vision. He is the founder, president, and CEO of Promanus. He is John Bogdasarian. John, welcome to Street Smart Success. Thanks, Roger. Appreciate you having me on. Yep, you got it. And so you're uh, you're there in the uh, you're obviously a guy that loves uh, warm climates, and that's why you've chosen to be in Ann Arbor, uh, Michigan. Um, are you are you a, a native Michigander? Is that where the John Bogdasarian story started? What's the what's the upbringing of John? Yeah, so I was raised in Ann Arbor, and um, my father was uh, ear, nose, and throat surgeon here for years and years. So the Bogdasarian name is is well known in the community because he put so many tubes in kids' ears and took tonsils out and stuff like that. And I kind of capitalized on that with uh, a residential real estate business. People always kind of like, they knew the name, but they didn't know that where they knew it from. So they, I would kind of get like this name recognition um, back when I was trying to list houses and sell houses. And <clears throat> that was I kind of traded on my dad's reputation a little bit there, but um, that's how I got started. I went to uh, high school out east, um, and I went to University of Arizona for five or so years. I think it was five, um, and that was amazing. And I just, you know, I came back here and um, sort of inadvertently grew roots. I didn't didn't really necessarily want to live in Michigan, but you know, it's a great place. Ann Arbor is a tremendous town. I'm a I'm a diehard Michigan fan, so. You know, so it's a great spot, great place to raise kids, that kind of thing. But yeah, climate, not so great. About two, three months of the year, it's it's pretty sorry. But nine months of the year, not bad. I got it. Well, I, I was going to wait till later in the podcast to admit that I'm from Cleveland uh, when it comes to Uh-oh. the, yeah, the, there, there you got it, man. But I, I had to, <laughs> there it is. But I've been in the Bay Area a long time. I'm right outside of San Francisco. So when you say you went uh, to high school out east, you talking like a fancy boarding school kind of thing? Yeah, yeah. I was a prep school kid. Um, my dad had gone to Loomis Chafee. His two brothers went there. My sister was there at the time. It was sort of a, a family thing that we're, we're now breaking with our kids because we, we just can't stomach the idea of them leaving at, you know, 14, 15 years old. So uh, my oldest daughter is in high school here in Michigan. And, um, and, and I think all our kids will inevitably stay here in town for high school. But I was a different type of kid. um, My kids are like good students and get good grades. I was miserable in school. I hated school, you know, never really got better than a C average and, um, and even kind of struggled with that because 
you know, way back when they, I don't think they really knew what to do with the AD kid, ADHD kid, whatever I was. And, uh, you know, I just, I, I hyper-focus and then I kind of feel like I understand everything that's going on. And then I go daydream and start, you know, visualizing myself as a rock star or a movie star or something like that. And then I'll tune back in and realize I'm, you know, eight steps behind everybody. And so I'm, I can't catch up now. So I might as well just go back and live that fantasy of being, you know, Tom Cruise or Harrison Ford or something. And then, uh, you know, inevitably fail the test when it comes up so you and i both would be more likely to be confused with a bruce willis if you follow uh for yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah well this is just audio so i thought i'd paint him more you, know. <laughs> uh, you and i my friend this this is this conversation <laughs> is about you and not me but i have to tell you you and i have a lot in common because you were describing me as a kid and uh, I got sent to boarding school. But when I say I got sent, that is true. But I also wanted to go because I blah, blah, blah. And at the end of the day, I ended up getting expelled from boarding school. But but I as well, you know. Um, I almost did. I talked my way out of it. <laughs> yeah, you were, you were smarter and smoother than me. Um, and I'll tell you, when I was in high school, I did put forth some effort to get better grades. And I just really, I just didn't, you know, I never got more than a, it, 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 than C's an occasional B and something I had maybe more of a, you know, proclivity towards, but by and large, man, it was like my, my GPA was probably like a 2.3. And to this day, I feel stupid, despite the fact a number of people I've known professionally have said, you know, hey, man, you're one of the smartest guys I've ever met, but I don't feel that in my gut. But this, again, I've said too much because this is supposed to be about you. Yeah, well, it's, I mean, honestly, it's identical. And I think, you know, I had a big chip on my shoulder because a lot of people would say, well, you're never going to amount to anything. You're lazy or whatever. And like you, I, I tried. I don't know if you remember Three's Company, but um, yep. John, John Ritter, the actor, put out a program called Where There's a Will there's an A. And I was like, I mean, I watched those videos, you know, they were on like the big VHS tapes and I'd stick them in there and I'd watch them and I'd try and apply these, these lessons as to how to study and how to do things. And I just couldn't do it. I mean, I like to say that I have virtually no CPU. I've got, I've got an incredible amount of RAM but I just don't have any CPUs. And, and I, so I just can't draw useless facts, you know, out of a thing and regurgitate them on paper. And I, I never saw the use for nine out of 10 of the classes I was in. But like you probably did, when I got into like shop class and small gas engines and electricity one and electricity two and hard materials and soft materials, straight A's, vocational straight A's. But when you go to like, you know, these abstract concepts of what i don't know something might like mathematics i saw as you know hey i know addition i know multiplication that's it i don't need to know anything else right <laughs> because that's applicable to making money or doing whatever or growing something or you know or doing some quick percentage calculations i can do math lightning fast in my head always boggles people's mind but the reality is i you know once i got to like calculus it was sort of like God, I just don't see the application here. And my teachers never linked it to what it might actually mean in the real world. Had the same problem with chemistry, 
had the same problem with, you know, lots of stuff. Just couldn't couldn't quite make the uh, modern day use of it, you know, relevant. And yeah, so whatever. That's school. Um, that, that's school. And, you know, and I appreciate you, you know, suggesting that, you know, that I w- would have done well in those classes. But, but in truth, uh, in the spirit of honesty, no, I sucked at all those too. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had a great teacher. Mr. Paul was amazing. He was an incredible storyteller and he would just engage us so completely in those classes. And, um, I mean, it was, you know, that was, those were the best classes of my life. I did have one or two in prep school like that too. I remember taking a thanatology class the study of death and dying and just thought that was amazing. And then, um, and then a public speaking class. I really enjoyed that. Like I could get up in front of the class and just start talking and telling a story. And they taught you kind of how to bring it down low when you needed to. And, you know, it was, it was cool. It was more like the theater acting type thing that I wanted to do. But it was too chicken shit to actually do stage fright and all, but let me let me go take a huge leap backwards, um, and, and no one's ever asked you this on a podcast because because it just frankly like potentially politically PC, but it really isn't. And it's this Bogdasarian. Is that Armenian? Yeah, yeah. It's uh, we pronounce it Bogdasarian. Okay, Bogdasarian, Bogdasarian. Yeah, it's um, it's Armenian. And you know, if you have the Armenian last name, the I A N, then you're 100 percent Armenian. It's how it goes. But that's what they say anyway. And so I, I love the name. I'm, I'm proud of the Armenian heritage. I, I know where my family came from on my on both sides. Really, it's my dad's side that is the Armenian side. My mom's side is more Scots-Irish, Scandinavian descent, Mayflower types, I guess I'd call them. But um, yeah, we were a, a, a family that, you know, great, great grandparents escaped the genocide, you know, came over on a boat. I think became a cobbler in New York City. My great-grandfather put his son through medical school. That would be my grandfather, Robert. He's passed away now. Um, and uh, and then he actually, I think he went to University of Michigan, actually, for medical school. And then he put his three sons, that would be my dad and my two uncles, um, they all went to Harvard, uh, overachievers. Um, and then uh, and they all became physicians as well, all recently retiring um uh, my dad went to University of Syracuse for medical school, which is where I was born. Their wedding photos, I think my mom, my mom's wedding photos were all from the waist up because my sister's two years older than me and they were, I just tried to do the math and I was like, okay, you got married when? And so anyway, I think she was under the gun, so to speak. But I think, and, and most of the Armenians I meet and talk to know that history and they respect that history, but we're not necessarily, I, I don't know many that really cling to the heritage per se. We, we we tend to be, or at least I like to think of us as being people that kind of try and take the good out of everything and, and create value for people and, and, and move forward in that and, and sort of forget the bad, you know, like, um, I got to say it, it sometimes bothers me to buy Turkish towels, but you know, at the end of the day, I don't have anything against anybody from Turkey. You know, they didn't persecute me and I don't really know what was going on a hundred years ago. And there's no point in carrying a grudge on any of that stuff anyway. So, but that's, yeah, that's a loaded question for any uh, Armenian, I guess, but I don't mind talking about it. So, you know, you, you go to U of A, my guess is just this far into our conversation, a kid that gets stuck in a, in a East Coast boarding school 
goes to U of A, upper middle class kid, dad's a super successful surgeon. Something tells me you partied a bit at U of A. Uh, yeah, that's, um, we could skip over those five years and uh, <laughs> yeah. get into too much detail on <laughs> yeah. that one. But yeah, I went to, honestly, I went to college for the social education. I mean, I just, I had gotten the education. L- Loomis was in a tremendous school academically and I, I was miserable there for four years. I, I applied to come into Loomis as a sophomore because we went here in, in Ann Arbor, our middle schools went seven, eight, nine, and our high schools went 10, 11, 12. So I was applying to go to the 10th grade and come into Loomis as a sophomore. And they said, look, you know, we'll take you because your dad and his two brothers went here and your sister's here, but you're too stupid to come in as a sophomore. You got to start as a freshman. And I was like, okay, I really wanted to go there. Like you, it wasn't like I was sent. I was like, I went there and spent a night there to visit my sister and I got to stay in a kid's dorm room. And of course, we were up to no good. I'm not going to get into details on that. But like, I was away from home. I was 14 years old. And I was like, oh, this is insane. Like, I can do whatever I want within reason if I don't get busted, right? And so um, that level of freedom just, I mean, after that visit, I was like, I want to go there. And the resources and the academics and the sports and the photography classes. And the, I mean, it, it was a tremendous opportunity. And I, I was also fortunate where, you know, the rule in our family is if we can afford to do it, we pay for our children till they're done with their education. And then they're on their own. They don't get any money to start with. They don't get any, you know, there's no trust fund. There's no anything like that. So, so I, I want to say, I, I, you know, in a way I kind of, um, I took very good advantage of an educational opportunity in prep school, which is an expensive place to go, um, but it was paid for. And then I really kind of squandered the college uh, um, educational experience, I guess, but not from a social perspective. I mean, you know, I had the five best years. I used to say it's the five best years of my life. Um, I'm not so sure that's the case anymore now that I've got four kids and I'm coaching two baseball teams and I'm having a great time now too. It's like, I, you know, you can't really compare, but, but I will say being at the university of Arizona was, was just an incredible opportunity. And all the guys in my, my group, my clique, my fraternity house there were, were not all of them, but I would say 70% of them were just like me. I mean, they were like, you know, these ADD kids. I mean, you could wake up on a Tuesday and be like, Hey, anybody want to go to Mexico? And like five of us would jump in a van and, and drive to Rocky point, Puerto Penasco and, and sleep on the beach for two nights and then come back. I mean, it was, it was just crazy and it was so much fun. And, and I mean, these guys, so, you know, they turned out to be one of them's the head of uh, cardiac thoracic surgery at a hospital up in Idaho. Uh, one of them's the president of Netflix. One of them has like 30 internet companies that generate insane amounts of, they call it mailbox money. One of them's, you know, a, a very happy, successful uh, one of my best friends, he's a, he's a high school English teacher and he loves what he does and he has his own sailboat and he sails around all over the place. I mean, I can give you example after example of these guys that one of my buddies uh, got into mergers and acquisitions, retired when he was 30. And then, you know, his kids started getting older. So he started building another company because he's like, my kids got a little suspicious as to why I'm always sitting on the couch, not doing anything. So I felt like I had to go back to work. But a lot, my point is, a lot of these guys turned out, one, one of them is, a, is an exceptional artist. I, I haven't followed up with him lately, but I've seen his work and I'm like, wow, that's amazing. You know, so I just, I look at it and I'm like, 
you don't have to go do the Ivy League, go to school, whatever, get the pedigree and go to Manhattan and, you know, whatever. Like that's just, that's an avenue a lot of people take and hey, more power to them. Like, look, if I could have gotten into Harvard, I would have gone there, you know, but even legacy three sport athlete could have played for all the Harvard teams. They're like, yeah, no chance, buddy. You know, we don't take kids with 1200 SATs or whatever I had. They're like, yeah, no. And I think I had to cheat to get 1200 just for the record. But yeah. So anyway, I, I just, you know, like I, a lot of people that gravitate towards me and come meet with me and talk to me and want to know how I got to where I am today are, are very much of this sort of uh, entrepreneurial ADD kind of mindset. And so what I've created and, and what I like to talk about on podcasts, my passion is this life plan that I created for myself back in my mid twenties. It's really nothing more than a glorified Excel spreadsheet with multiple tabs on it. And I, I kind of created this thing for myself and I utilized a lot of my mentors. I always, like I said, I learned vocationally. So I had as my personal coach back when I was in my 20s, I was paying guys like Tony Robbins, um, a guy named Mike Ferry, who was one of the best sales coaches in the world, uh, a guy named Bob Bullen, who was like a business mentor and owned, a, uh, it was one of the top 10 real estate agents in the United States uh, in terms of production and gross commission income. So I like aggressively sought out mentors I paid them even when I really couldn't afford to pay them. You know, one guy I was paying, I think, you know, just to have a conversation with Tony Robbins once a month, I was paying him like two grand a month way back then. And, and, you know, so it was like, I had this and, and, but, but my production in real estate went from, I think my first year selling homes, I, I did like a hundred, 50 transactions, which was like, I didn't even realize it was like 10 times what the average agent did. And then, and I think I did like a hundred and $280,000 in commission income. And then the next year it went to like 550,000. And then, um, you know, I was in my, I think I was 28, 29 when I was given an award as one of the top 100 agents in the country for Prudential, which had 40,000 agents, most of which were in California or a lot of which were in California with high price homes. So I was doing 120, 140 real estate transactions a year to make a million in gross commission income, which back in, you know, 99, 98 was, was quite a bit of money. And, and that was all driven by the fact that I, I just, I paid people to hold me accountable and teach me a plan. And then, and then what I did is I developed my own business plan, taking things from Robert Kiyosaki and, and, and his game cash flow and taking things from uh, Mike Ferry and his question-based approach to sales and taking things from um, Tony Robbins and how, how and why people are motivated. Um, a guy named Fred Gross from us, uh, New Zealand, who I met with four times a year, occasionally in New Zealand. I think I met him once in New Zealand, but he would come to the U.S. And I would spend two full days with him four times a year. And he was like my mental coach. So, you know, all these things that that I needed, I could get, I found, not on the internet, um, like today. I mean, you just, that, that didn't exist, right? Which people, it's mind blows my kids. They're like, what? I'm like, yeah, there were no cell phones, buddy. There wasn't even email when I got, was doing this stuff, you know? Like, I used to, I remember when email came up, I had my assistant print my emails and I would handwrite the response and give them back to her and she would put it in the computer and send it back. And I probably did that for two years because I just, I was like, what is email? But 
Anyway, I created this life plan, uh, not to digress too much, which is really broken down into a safe plan, a secure plan, and what I call a sick rich plan. And the safe plan is pretty simple. It's kind of like a Dave Ramsey thing. When people come to me, I'm like, all right, no credit card debt. Let's get rid of all that first. You know, establish a budget, live within your means. Let's get you out of debt. If you're in debt, if you're already out of debt, great. Now we go to step two of the safe plan. Let's max out the IRA. Let's do the simple things. Let's get a fixed rate 30-year mortgage if we're buying a property. Let's make sure we're not over levered. Let's never borrow money out of our house ever. This, again, is the very safe plan. This is if everything else goes to crap, you're going to be fine. You're going to be putting away 10 20% of what you make every year. It's going into your safe plan. And it's like the richest man in Babylon type stuff. You know, it's like ultimately, if you're just smart, index funds, you're not picking stocks. We're not chasing yield. This is just a discipline and a muscle you got to build. And so once that safe plan is kind of put in place and is funded, then we shift over to the secure plan. And we're like, all right, what can we do to build this secure plan? And for me, the secure plan was buying rental properties and creating passive income. And, and that's how I started, was buying single family rental properties. Then I started to kind of expand on that secure plan and started doing some development deals like Roundup stuff. And then I said, oh, wow, you know, here's a way I could make more money if I work with other people's capital. If I can generate a return for rich people, well, like I say, I'd like to make rich people richer because they're the only ones that are allowed to invest in your deals, right? Accredited investors. So if I can do that, and I can create value for them, but now I'm working with, you know, 20 million, 100 million, 250 million worth of capital, you know, and I'm taking a little piece of the action on that, that can really catapult this secure plan, which I, I built and funded, you know, and, and, and got to the point where, hey, I can live off this secure plan. I have passive income. I'm out of the rat race, as Kiyosaki says in Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And, you know, I achieved that years and years ago. And so then I could start experimenting with this sick rich plan. And what was that? That was like, all right, my wife owned a, a concept. She created a company called Coach Me Fit for herself. And it was just one-on-one -on -one private personal training. It was the first one to ever come out like that. There was another one called Fitness Together at the time. That was the only other one. And so I got the bright idea to franchise that, right? And so we created a franchise corporation. I met with a bunch of people that own franchise corporations. I learned how to do it. I was like, okay, we're going to open 300 of these things and be loaded and every, you know, and we're going to take a royalty off all this other stuff. And I learned a ton about the franchising business. I also learned that it's very, very difficult, especially when you're selling franchises where people are really buying their own job. You know, and that's kind of what we ended up with was this model of buying your own job. We had like five locations and then 2007 hit and nobody could get financing for anything. And it was impossible to do a franchise. And we, we just, we sold it and we did okay, but it wasn't any big, you know, cash cow, but that was, but the point is I'm trying to make is like, if your safe plans funded, if your secure plans funded, you can start dabbling in these things and doing things that ultimately have, you know, 10 X, a hundred X, a thousand X upside but you don't ever sacrifice your safe plan for your secure plan. And you don't sacrifice your secure plan for your, you know, sick rich plan. You do it all along the way to learn, right? Everything you're doing is to learn something. So essentially I'm just making like, uh, in 2018, I started a seed capital company called orange seed capital and, um, me and a couple other guys. 
And we invested in 2018 in a batch of companies coming out of Y Combinator out in your neck of the woods, right? And we, we put together between the three of us and four passive investors, we put together 750 grand and we put that into, you know, 14 different companies. And again, we picked companies because it was like, we want to learn about this. We want to learn about that. What is, you know, how's that, what, what's going on in the world? So Symmetric is one of the companies, great company. They're in Latin America and they've got a, a reconciliation platform to reconcile the banking industry, retail, huge retail businesses, so that, like, if you think about it, I didn't know about any of this stuff. Now I know a ton about it, because I'm on the call with these guys, and I talk to them, and I figure out, like, well, what does this company do, and how can I help, and how can I create value, and and it's amazing. Another one called Glowing, which is a messaging app, so if you check into a hotel, and you get a message like, hey, you know, Mr. Becker, welcome to the Regency you know, I'm Bill, I'm your concierge. If you need anything at all, let me know. Well, that's an AI program that's created as part of their messaging app. And if you text back like, oh my gosh, I forgot my toothbrush, that AI will pick up on the word toothbrush. It'll route the message to housekeeping. Housekeeping will hit reply and say, oh, Mr. Backer, we'll be right up with your toothbrush. Is there anything else you might need? And just to make sure it picks up on everything, it'll ask for like a confirmation from you and you'll be like, you know, no, I'm all set. Thanks. And, you know, so it's, and it eliminates a position. Nobody has to answer a call at the desk. Nobody has to talk to you. It's all just done through AI. And it's an incredible company called Glowing. They're out of uh, Vegas. And they're they're now um, actually out in your neck of the woods. They just launched at the Sacramento Kings. So uh, if you go to the Sacramento Kings uh, game, uh, whether you're a season ticket holder or not, especially if you're not a season ticket holder, you can opt into their messaging platform. And they will... They'll send you updates on ticket packages. They'll send you like drink specials. They'll tell you which restrooms are crowded, which aren't. They'll do, I mean, you know, it's just this incredible tech that kind of comes together and it's, it's amazing. So, you know, the reality is, is um, now my sick rich plan is funded because I've invested in all these various startups and some of them have gone insanely through the roof and their valuations are incredible. And it's like, you know, it's, it's stupid money. I mean, you're like, it's like, you know, I got a whole bunch of friends that are in the crypto NFT space. You know, we're, we're doing funds for, um, like right after this, I've got a meeting with a guy to talk about a proof of stake fund, Ethereum proof of staking fund that, that is, he's already started that I might get involved with and add, you know, a couple hundred million of capital to, you know, it's just nutty stuff now. But that plan is, so right now, um, I wrote one book called, do the work once, get paid forever. And that was really designed for like investors who wanted to invest in um, passive income, like private placements, like what I put together. So that was designed to have a conversation. You know, if anybody's interested, they can email me or something. We'll send them a copy of the book, but, or they can buy it on Amazon if they want, but you know, I'm happy to send it to them too. But that one's really designed to have a conversation that I was having with gobs of people and, you know, I just decided it's more efficient if I just send them a book. It's the same thing I'd tell them anyway. And, um, and then this next book slash manual that I'm writing is all about this life plan that I'm developing and just to help people out. Like, I'm not going to make money off of it. I don't care. I just, the problem is, like, I've been giving this life plan to people for years now. And the responses I'm getting like are insane. Like a couple months ago, I just sent out an email randomly to like 
seven, eight people that I had given this life plan to like five years ago. One guy was an emergency room physician at the time. And his response back to me, literally, I, I saved it. It's, it's incredible. It's the email back was, John, you wouldn't believe it. I wrote down what I wanted to do on this life plan. Everything I've written down, I've accomplished. I have 140 rental units. I just gave notice to quit my job. I'm no longer a doctor. He didn't want to be an emergency room doctor anymore. He was like, his idea was to get out of that. He's like, I set my own schedule. I do what I want. I love what I do every day. I mean, not that being an emergency room doctor is a bad thing. It's a great thing. Those guys are insanely uh, valuable to society and helpful, and you, you can't get enough. But for him, he was kind of like, wow, I went through medical school. I did all this, and I'm not really enjoying being a, an ER doc, right? And so he took this plan, and he took it there. And I, I've got so many stories like that that came back that were just so insanely, you know, like blew their minds. Like everything you write down on this plan, you accomplish. I mean, because you, you refer back to it, you know, and it's like it allows people like me and like you who might get off track like I'm doing on this podcast right now. <laughs> um, to, to, you know, I got an email line, right? Hey, Street Smart listeners, I'd like to introduce a great partner for you. As you know, insurance is one of the biggest expenses on the P&L. That's why I'm recommending Assured Partners. Assured Partners helps you lower risk and therefore can save you tons of money down the road. They insure over 2 million market rate and affordable units and are the sixth largest insurance property broker in the U.S. If you want a roll-your-sleeves-up partner that blankets you with service, give Robert Band, vice president, a call. Robert thinks like a CFO because he was a CFO for many years. Give Robert a call now at 305-467-5909. You'll be glad you did. So it allows you to get back on track and say, what is my focus this year? What is it that I want to do? Are these systems in place? Are these things happening? And, and you run kind of a five-year projection. And, you know, it's not to say you can't get thrown a curve, but it's, it's amazing. I mean, I, everything I've ever written down on there, I've accomplished. And it's not just money. It's like I, wanted to, I was out in the Delta sailing with my buddy who has a boat out your way. And we were sailing the California Delta. And I saw this guy. This was like 15 years ago. I saw this guy with a kite on a board flying around in the air and skimming across the water. And I was like, what is that? You know, I've always been into water sports. I'm like, that's crazy. And so, you know, I, I was like, from that moment, I was like, I got to learn how to do that. Well, like 10 years later, I just put it on my business plan. And I was like, I'm going to learn how to kite surf. And, uh, and so I went out to Hatteras, went to a three-day class at Real Water Sports and learn to go, they call it from zero to hero. It's really from zero to panic mode. Um, <laughs> but, but I got hooked, right? And so I bought a full set of gear. Now I kite surf in the Turks. I've been to maybe all over the place. I'm going to go to Brazil later this year. So, and my, so my good buddy and I go, go kite surfing, you know, four or five times a year to various places. And it's, it's amazing. And so I, but that was in my business plan. I mean, life plan. It was in the plan. Had to be there. Otherwise, I wouldn't do it. You know, and you got to schedule it. And so we, part of the plan are these things that Fred Gross used to refer to as big rocks or 10s, 25s, 50s, and 100s, we call them. So they're just things you reward yourself with. 10s more on a daily basis, 25s maybe on a monthly basis, 50s maybe 
you know, quarterly or, or twice a year. And hundreds are like these things like, you know, I want to learn how to kite surf. I want to go to Australia. You know, I want to get my pilot license. I put that on there. Um, my instrument rating, that was on there. I got that done. I want to own my own plane. I bought a plane, bought a Cessna to get my pilot's license, sold the Cessna, bought a Beechcraft Bonanza G36 to get my instrument rating, got that done last year. You know, now next year, um, you know, I want to upgrade to a TBM 900. So my buddy has one. I've already made a deal with him and he's looking to upgrade to the new 960. And if he gets that, I'm getting his 900. So I've got it in the works, right? Like I put it on the plan and I'm like, this is what I need to do. And I know how much it's going to cost. And so then I know, then that drives me to go back to the business portion of the plan and start thinking creatively, like, geez, where am I going to get an extra 2 million bucks next year? And how am I going to do that? And what kind of deal do I have to put together? So I already figured it out. Um, when I was down kite surfing in the Turks last year, I came across a piece of dirt I could buy on Grace Bay Beach for six and a half million bucks. So I quickly put a group of investors together, gave them an 18% return on their money for one year and said, we're going to buy this property. I'm going to give you 18% more in one year and it's going to be capital gains treatment. And sure enough, we sold it for 11 million. And so, you know, there's a margin I make over that. Obviously I make a couple million bucks. There it is, you know, and now I can get my plane. And it's kind of like life is primary, but business funds life, right? And so the whole plan is kind of like in, in, intertwined to do that. But anyway. I got that because we, uh, you know, you've got a hard stop in like 20 minutes. So I want to ask you, I want to ask you about ground up. And so in, in the world of ground up construction, it looks like you're not doing it. And you can correct me if I'm wrong. Number one, it looks like you're not doing it in places like Ann Arbor, Grand Rapids, Detroit, which, you know, uh, reputedly has had some growth maybe by fits and starts, but whatever. But I'm sure condos have gone up in, in Detroit. So why ground up? Like what, why the markets you do it in? And like, what are the risks and how, how much money is spent on labor versus materials and all that kind of fun stuff? So a lot of that, like, like 20 questions right there. Yep. No. So good questions. I think, you know, the summary of that is um, we're looking for markets where the net influx of people is greater. You know, we, just people are moving to Nashville, for example. And so you got, let's say 30,000, I don't know the exact numbers offhand, but you know, we, we have them and we've looked at them and we go, okay, well, let's say 30,000 people a year are moving to Nashville. Well, they're not building 30,000 housing units a year in Nashville. They're not building anywhere near that, you know? So we look at that and go supply demand. It's as simple as that. What's the supply demand situation in a given market? Denver, same thing, Nashville, Florida, a lot of markets in Florida, um, especially the higher end markets on the water. You know, I mean, people are, People are, I like to say, running out of time faster than they're running out of money. And that's on one side of the spectrum. On the other side of the spectrum, you got people that can barely afford anything and you can't find a place to live. So so we like, we don't want to be in middle. We want to be like, you know, either building something that's kind of higher end or building something that is more attainable because there really isn't anything terribly affordable. We're looking at workforce housing deals. We're looking at, um, you know, I mean, Boise is a super hot market. There's just, you know, Texas is growing like mad. There's some areas in Texas, San Marcos. We're doing 500 apartments there. Later this year, we'll start that project. 
So, you know, we're looking for markets where just the general supply demand makes sense. Then we're looking for a product type that fits that supply demand problem, solves, solves a challenge for people, provides something that is needed for that particular community. And then we're looking for deal sponsors like developers that we like and that we want to be in business with. And what we do now is we don't actually go out and find the land and do the entitlement and all that kind of stuff. We used to do that. I've done that around Michigan. I do have a 50-unit condo project that I could discuss at length ad nauseum, actually, in Ann Arbor, because it's the most difficult place to develop, maybe outside of Boulder, Colorado. That might be one. If that's one, Ann Arbor's two. And it's like, we call it the People's Republic of Ann Arbor. It's impossible to get anything done here. By the time you're done with your project, you're so ready to move out of Ann Arbor and shoot yourself in the head that you're just like, I'll never do that again. That's how I feel about it. I just, you know, and I know a lot of other people that feel the same way. And I'm, I'm not, uh, uh, if you, if you want to get, get, you know, non PC in a conversation, I am more than happy to, (laughs) you know, throw Ann Arbor under the bus in terms of their red tape, you know, bureaucratic BS you got to go through to get anything done at all. And their wastefulness. I mean, we have, we have the worst little league fields in Michigan. And we are the largest tax base in Michigan. I mean, we our parks and rec department is brutal. I mean, it's just brutal. So anyway, maybe they'll listen to this, maybe they won't. I don't care. And I, you know, I'm sure they're good people trying to do good things, but they just there's too much bureaucracy and too much red tape and too many people doing studies on whether there was a groundhog living there 30 years ago or not. You know, it's like really weird stuff. But um, to answer your question, to get back to it. Um, we're looking for areas that aren't like that. We're looking for places where it's used by right. It's called, we don't have to go through some crazy approval process where it's a public vote, where a whole bunch of neighbors show up. Hell no, we won't go. And and then city council votes and says, no, you can't have that there because the neighbors don't like it. And I'm like, when in America did it come to the point where the neighbor decides what I get to do and don't get to do with my property? Like, that's where we don't go. So we don't go to Ann Arbor anymore. We won't do anything here. We won't even do anything in Pittsfield Town, in some of the townships around Ann Arbor, because they're so brutal. It's like, it's just, it's stupid, right? Like, it's like, they're taking your property rights away. And you can sue, and you can win that argument in court every time, because they're really there to uphold the health, welfare, and safety of the residents. They're not there to dictate whether you put an office building or a hotel on your property. Those are... Those are rights that you have as a property owner, right? So you can win that argument, but it takes years. They drag you out. And by the time you win, you're in another cycle and you can't do what you intended to do anyway. So they know that. And it's just a stupid game. And it's like, I don't want to play it. It's not the game I want to play. So we go to areas and you ask where we pick these places. We pick places that are developer friendly, that want us to be there. And they want good projects. And they're not going to create a barrier to that. And so those are the places that are growing and that's where people want to live and that's where people want to go. And so, you know, that's what we do. And then, like I said, now we do take control of the project, but the person who brings us the deal really runs the day-to-day project and we're the capital. So we handle all the equity and we'll also help uh, attain the debt if they don't have debt lined up. And then we manage the books. We run the accounting functions. We create the private placement memorandum, the subscription agreement. We distribute the K-1s and file the tax return. And that person who wants to be a developer just 
He's, he's just the developer. He goes and finds properties that make sense. He or she, I should say. Um, we've backed a woman in Nashville now on five or six projects. We've grown her from being a very, very small-time developer to being a very, very large developer that probably doesn't even need us anymore. She's, you know, she's built an insane track record and we've made a lot of money back in her and it's been great. And, um, and, you know, now she's doing projects that, you know, we're, we're not even her money, you know, cause we don't have any exclusive right on it. We look for situations where we can create value for the developer because we can handle the equity and, and all the money and they don't have to worry about that. They can do what they love to do, which is typically going out and finding the best, highest in use for a property. And then we, we also create value for our investors because we put kind of a layer of scrutiny and due diligence over the project. And by, by structure alone, we mitigate a lot of risk, right? Like um, investor equities always pay back first. There's a preferred rate of return on it. You know, so there's, so that's what we do now. Um, in terms of construction, we don't, we verify, but all of our projects have what are called GMP contracts. So there's a gross maximum price. Um, if you're using a reputable contractor, they're going to stick to it. Um, and there's, there's a lot of what I call margin for safety built in. We have contingency fees in the contract, the construction contract itself, um, for any cost overruns. We also put a, another contingency fee on soft costs and just the whole project in general that the contractor doesn't even know about just to be safe. And then we oftentimes like there's, there's usually, you know, decent developer fees on these deals. And we, we kind of draw those out as to what, you know, people need just to live off of. And then we subordinate the rest and use it as another safety valve because I don't really need developer fees, you know, to survive anymore. So I'm like, well, let's just, let's just wait. And if the project comes out right, we'll take our developer fee at the end of the project. And if it doesn't come out right, we won't charge it. And we'll make sure our investors get their capital back and some return. You know, so, so that's the general answer. If there's anything you want to drill down on. So, so I do. So I was with a friend of mine in New York a couple months ago or whatever, and he has done some development of shopping center, some multifamily, you know, he's, he's far more sophisticated and experienced than I am. And he said, he made a statement that it was interesting because I just didn't know. And he said, all the risk, not, not literally, but, you know, Broadly, all the risk he said in cons- new construction is before you break ground. Once, once it, it's basically what exists below ground that you don't see or know about. But once all that's done, uh, and, and you start going, you know, above ground, then it's pretty much a the ri- you don't have nearly as much risk. So, is that true? And then, if it's true, what are the risks you know that you don't see you know heading into one of these deals? Well, yeah. So risk is really proportionate to knowledge is what I like to say. So some guys have exceptional, you know, construction experience. And so they, they don't deem the construction process to be, you know, as risky as somebody who, you know, hasn't been through it a number of times. We, if you think about it, what I'm doing now is five times as many deals, maybe even 10 times as many deals as if I ran the whole project start to finish myself. So by just running the equity, I look at hundreds of deals a month. And when we land on one that we like, you know, we, we get it going, we do it. And so we, we may have 10 projects going at any given time. Whereas if I'm the developer, I'm doing one project at a time. So 
the fact that I'm seeing so many different deals means that I'm seeing a lot more of the problems that come up in these deals. And I understand what the risks are better than if, you know, and I used to say this about residential real estate too. If I'm selling 10 times as many homes as another real estate agent, I'm gaining 10 times the experience and I'll see 10 times the, the things that they will see. And so I can get experience faster by, you know, shopping more deals, looking at more deals and actually completing more deals. So to give you an example of a risk that we don't, we would never have seen before that came up on a project in Sarasota, we were building an 18 story high rise. We love the deal. It was 50% pre-sold. We love the people who brought us the deal. Um, he was an architect by trade. The, the detail on this building was insane and, you know, it had a lot of profit in it. And so we said, okay, we had like, I think 24 million or so of equity and it was like a hundred million dollar, you know, high rise, 18 stories. And the penthouses were pre-sold at like 7 million and 5 million. And I mean, it was with 30% non-refundable deposit. So we looked at it as almost risk-free, right? But they had a lender all lined up to do the deal, you know, $70 million construction loan um, at some kind of 3% interest rate or something. And we were like, hey, that's great. You know, we never thought to like underwrite the lender. Um, we, we did think to check on them. We got three references. We called them and they were all like, oh, yeah, you know, they're great, you know, whatever. And so we go, okay, cool. And so we're pouring like the eighth floor or something, and I get a call from the guys down there saying, uh, if we don't pay our contractor $3 million by Friday, they're going to walk off the job. It'll avoid the gross maximum price contract, and, you know, the whole deal is going to go under. And I'm like, what? And, and uh, you know, so the lender became insolvent. It was actually kind of a Ponzi scheme lender situation. This guy was running around saying, he, you know, he, was, he loaned us back are 20, $24 million. And then he couldn't fund construction draws after that. And it was like this kooky sovereign wealth hedge fund bullshit, you know, line. And he was just taking all the fees and then running off and, you know, buying houses for himself and stuff. And then, you know, he defaulted on funding loans. And we kept getting all these stories. Well, I'm in Mexico, I'm moving money, you're going to get funded. And he kept bleeding us out, bleeding us out, bleeding us out. So you know, for, that's a, that's something I don't think anybody had ever seen that before, you know, and, and, and you could not anticipate that ahead of time. So, you know, what I did was I uh, immediately arranged $10 million between me and some, uh, some of my investors. And we, we loaned that to the project at like 8% interest and for up to 90 days. And then I had to foreclose out the old lender because obviously he's on title and everything. We had to get rid of him. We got a judgment against him. Then I had to go find replacement debt, right? And trying to find debt for a project midstream from like a real lender is impossible. No bank would touch it. It was impossible. They were like, all they would focus on is what's wrong with it? What's wrong with it? And no matter how badly, I mean, we had, we had construction inspections. We had everything dialed in, we had buttoned up. Like there was nothing wrong with this project. We had non-refundable deposits, like I said, at this time, probably 60, 65% of the units. You know, the market was hot, no problems. But nobody would touch it. So I got saved by a, a private debt fund out of New York City called Nighthead. Nighthead Capital came in um, with a K, and I think. And um, they were great. They were like, you know, we got raked over the coals a little bit. We had to pay 8% where we were paying like 3 And we had some points and fees and minimum interest. But the reality is we had no other option. And they, they were friendly. They made it happen. They got it done fast. And we paid back the $10 million to our investors. And then 
you know, um, charged on and got the deal done and, and sold and closed out the last unit a month or so ago. And it turned out very successfully. Everybody made, uh, my investors made an 18% annual return for three years. You know, we did well. The guys that brought us the project did well, not as well as they would have had we not gone through that problem. And, and, and we didn't probably do as well as we would have, but you know, that's all right. You know, it was like, we did fine and my investors did fine and everybody came out okay. So, but those are things like, you know, they didn't know how to solve it. Like the guy, they, and because that's not their business. They were like architects and developers and like, they know how to get a building built and find a piece of dirt and run some numbers. But you know, that's an issue. That's where, when we step in, we're like, you know, we have different resources than, than, than the typical uh, person who's doing one or two development deals a year. And we have the ability to kind of solve these things. And, and, and there's endless stories like that. Like there's almost no story that just goes directly according to plan um, and everything's handled and we don't have to step in and get involved. Um, with the exception of, of um, Meg, probably in Nashville, she's gotten a couple through that way. They've just been dead home runs and she's just done just an incredible job. And, and we've got some guys in Denver too that are, you know, we don't have to babysit them. Uh, at all. They're very good and they've got a, a set program that works quite well. Um, but a number of them we got to get involved in and, you know, we got to fix the things that come up that you can't possibly anticipate. So anyway, and you know, there's the old saying, you make more money on the deals you don't do than on the deals you do. And that's very true. Like saying no is important. You cannot start stretching numbers, looking at things differently and trying to manipulate things to make a deal work. It has to work. And that's why we don't get involved. Yes, about Detroit. We don't get involved in Detroit because the deals don't work unless you get like some kind of tax credit or TIF or Metro District or whatever they call it in your market. It's, um, you know, we don't want to do a deal based on subsidies and, and tax, you know, treatment, the opportunity zone thing, for example. We don't really go out and look for opportunity zone deals because they're, they're opportunity zones for a reason. Nobody wants to be there. So we're like, okay, well, you know, we're not going to avoid them. Like if somebody happens to bring us a property and it's in an op zone and it works and the, the location's decent, we'll do it. But we're not going to do it just for that, right? Just because we don't have to pay tax. I got it. It has to have some other intrinsics. So again, the most, the easiest question I ask you is, and, and, and shows how naive and uneducated I am, on a, on new construction, what percent of the of goes into materials versus labor? What's the bigger expense? Oh, I got no idea. It'll vary so widely by market to market too. Like in, I'll tell you what's really mind boggling is in some markets, your land cost will be like, virtually free compared to the labor and construction materials and that cost in other markets. Like, um, I think in Miami, we can pay like $35 million for a one acre piece of property. I mean, it's insane. And, but the numbers work because we can go 18 stories high. So it's like, it just, you know, it really depends where you are and what the market is. Obviously, in some markets like Arizona, your cost per foot to build is a lot cheaper. Um, you don't have the same requirements for, say, insulation and energy efficiency as you would in Michigan, where, where, where people want basements for some reason. Here, everybody has a basement. In a lot of markets, you don't have basements. You know, you're just slab on grade. Um, you've got, you know, I mean, there's just so many factors. I, um, you've got access to cheaper labor. 
in some of the southwestern markets where you still have a lot of immigrant labor, if you will, which, um, you know, I'm a large proponent of. I was a Spanish major at University of Arizona, and I wanted to work with NAFTA, and I'm really anti-closing the border. I think some of the hardest workers in this country were people who, you know, like my great-grandfather who came here and immigrated and became a cobbler. You know, like, no, he, they take jobs nobody wants. Nobody wants to, you know, go out and chop lettuce in a field. I'm like, you know, so I, I don't really understand the political climate on that one and closing all the borders because I guess some of the towns there maybe experience more crime or something like that. I don't know. But I think, you know, the reality is when I was, I lived in Texas for a summer and worked in restaurants, uh, washing dishes, bussing tables, uh, line cook. I worked in Atlanta. I worked in, um, you know, for some reason I thought I wanted to be in the restaurant business for a while. And, but I always had jobs. And, and, you know, the the hardest workers I ever saw were Mexicans. I mean, hardest workers ever. Head down, cranking out things, line prep, uh, everything faster than you could possibly imagine. And I was like, and they were great guys. And I would, you know, chat with them. They'd teach me the, like, all the Mexican swear words and stuff, which was cool. Um, <laughs> Because they didn't teach you that at Arizona. But anyway, it was, um, you, you know, you, you, you look at it and you're like, I don't want to get into politics, but. You, you, you kind of already have. Oh, I know, but, but we have, we have all these labor shortages, right? Like we can't get anybody right. to work and we, there's a help wanted sign on every freaking window. I'm like, why is that? Is it just that our economy's that good? I mean, you know, is it that, you know, I don't know. I, I, I just think there's opportunity. If I were if I were the U.S., I'd send 300 planes. I have 300 planes doing full day back and forth trips to the border of Ukraine, bringing Ukrainians in here. And I'd do a program where if you host a Ukrainian for a year, you get you know some money or something. And I mean, talk about brave people, hardworking, you know, smart people, smart that would have that would value you know being in a safe you know, protected, uh, environment like we have here in the U S it's like, you know, open the doors. I mean, we got plenty of land. We're not running out of land. We're not running out of resources. We got ingenuity and tech and let's bring the brains here. If they won't let you get on the internet in China, maybe those people will come here. You know, if they want to close off all their, close themselves off to the world, those countries are going to struggle and event the brains are going to leave. And I think, the U.S. should be the door that's open to the brains that want to come here and, and you know, treat them right. <laughs> I, I have one question because uh, you'd said the, the top of the hour is, is uh, your, your, your stop. So I do have one question. Last one I, I got to ask. Um, are you, if somebody brought you, if a sponsor brought you a value add for in multifamily you know, so obviously for an existing property, so not ground up, because I my guess would be ground up. You know, those are, you know, lucrative deals, especially when they go right. Would you look at that or do you just think, hey, man, that, that that's just not where the opportunity is right now because of, you know, the, the froth and the market or, you know, however you see the world? Value adds tremendous. We, we've done lots of value add deals. Um, we've done straight acquisitions. Um, you know, that's how we got started in 2009, aggressively buying industrial buildings and multi-tenant office buildings. Um, we were buying at 11 and 12 caps, um, sometimes even higher. I think right now in the market, 
it's very, very difficult to buy existing, you know, in place because the cap rates have compressed so low. And I think, you know, unless you can buy something where you've got the ability, like it just hasn't been managed properly. So we buy an existing multifamily where maybe we analyze it and realize the rents are a couple hundred bucks a month under market. And, you know, certainly a value add where we could do some renovations, maybe put a pitched roof on a flat roof building, make it look more modern with some updates, things like that, and improve it a little bit. I, I, the only time I hesitate on value-add multifamily is some multifamily that is dated and older is still very, very good, and it should just be maintained the way it is, in my opinion, so that it does create an affordable, safe place for people to live. And what I don't want to do is come in and put in a bunch of money into something that's working very well and then double everyone's rent and, you know, change the demographic, you know, substantially of who can live there. But, you know, there are plenty of deals where you can come in and value add a property because it's just almost functionally obsolete in its current use and people really aren't happy living there. Um, So yeah, we'll look at those. We'll look at straight acquisitions of portfolios. We'll look at, um, operating businesses now we have um interests in operating businesses although those don't typically go out widely to my investor group although we may start doing more of that now that we kind of have a track record and have experimented on ourselves and done quite well in some of these that's what i did in in before i took investor capital i had 24 single family home, homes myself that i had bought on a carlton sheets zero down program back in 1998 that's kind of how I got started was getting 80% from the bank, 20% from the seller and taking a commission and getting a credit. And so, you know, I did a lot of this stuff experimenting on myself before I ever took an investor dollar. And I've heard a few people say this, it's not the predominant thought in people that work with other people's money, unfortunately, but I I heard it again yesterday in a a peer group I'm in now um, with some other guys and, 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 and this young man said, you know, I don't mind doing things with my own money, but I get really stressed out about working with other people's money. Like I, I, you know, and that's how I am. I'm like, man, rule number one, don't lose money. And, you know, we've been very fortunate. Our deals have worked out so far. We're, you know, haven't lost any money for anybody. And a lot of our deals have surprised widely, wisely, surprised highly to the upside, which has been great, but we're primarily concerned with not losing money. And so, you know, and getting a reasonable rate of return. And I think if that's your mindset, you know, all this other stuff can be sorted out, but I'm answering more than your question. So I'll stop there, but um, value add. Yeah, we'll look at it. We look at everything. I mean, everything and anything. Got it, man. I, okay. I'm glad, I'm glad I asked the question and uh, I have loved doing this interview with you, John, you don't you say that to all the girls. I, I do. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and I also tell them, but you're cuter than most. And so, you know, I, I would, that wouldn't be sincere either. So, you know, <laughs> you're a funny, man. Hey, uh, you threw me off. But so if, if one were to be so inclined to, to contact you, find out more about you, et cetera, et cetera, how, how would they do that? So typically, I think we have um, IR, investor relations is just IR at 
promanas.com. Um, we, you know, you can go to the website, promanas.com. There's places to click on there and get a hold of us. Um, I've got a guy who pre-screens deals for me. So if somebody has something, you know, we'll typically shuttle that to him and he'll make direct contact and do kind of a pre-screen on any given deal. And once it makes it through him, then I typically jump on a call with him and, and, you know, like I, I try and limit that to like two, maybe three a week. Um, just because it's, um, you know, they just don't work that hard. Um, <laughs> I don't want to be in the office more than a few hours a day. And that's just, you know, I, I, that's how I do it. I kind of hyper-focus. So we have a system for that and we're happy to look at deals. We're happy to add people to our investor list. If they're interested in seeing the deals we put out, we operate with hundred percent transparency and we don't have any secrets. So, you know, if somebody wants a copy of a PPM or subscription agreement or know how we do things, you know, great. We're happy to help. Um, you know, anything we can do. And, uh, how many deals do you do a year approximately? Um, you know, it kind of comes and goes and fits and starts. Like we've been, we haven't done much in the last, I would say six months. I don't think we put out a deal because we've been in the, I, I call it the harvesting phase. Like so many of our deals have come to completion in the last six months. And so that's a, the wind up process is kind of big, right? You got to close it out. You got to whatever you got to, you know, take the wheelbarrow full of money and take it to the bank. And no, I'm just kidding. Um, no, it's, it's, uh, that's a big, it's a big, we're not that big, right? Like, so we only have like maybe eight people or something. And really like right now is baseball season and I coach two travel baseball teams for my boys. And you know, so I got a baseball game every night. So it's hard for me to travel and go like, look at a deal. I'll, I'll miss a game here and there to do it. But some of these deals will go same day. So like I'll fly to Nashville early in the morning and spend two hours looking at a deal and come back so I can get back and, you know, coach a game and whatever. But I'd say it's, it's a little difficult to get a relationship started with us as a developer. But once you do, like we're inclined to do all your deals. So we're like on the deal five or six with guys in Denver. We're on deal five or six with Meg in Nashville. We're on... We're, we're looking to do a, a second deal um, with a guy in Florida right now. Um, you know, so it's, um, that's kind of how we roll. And, but, but to get a hold of us, just go to promanas.com, rhymes with bananas, P-R-O-M-A-N-A-S, and then uh, get a hold of us. But yeah, we're happy to help any way we can. Got it, John. You are, and you're right, I do say this to all the beautiful women that I interview. <laughs> <laughs> But you are one beautiful woman. <laughs> I mean, my wife, uh, Lindsay, but um, she'll take it. Uh, okay. <laughs> anyway. Uh, fantastic. Go ahead. I appreciate your time, Roger. Thanks a lot for having me on. You got it, man. I'll talk to you soon. All right. You have a great day. See you later. Bye-bye. <laughs>